Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. The presumptive presidential nominees, Republican Donald Trump and Democrat Hillary Clinton, have made history already. That's because polls show they're two of the most unpopular presidential candidates since 1984. Now, maybe you've already picked a candidate to support, but beyond the question of who you'll be voting for this November, we want to know what you'll be voting for. Today, Where We Live, as part of NPR's The Nation Engaged series, we'll find out what issues matter most to you this election season. We'll talk with political scientists and community members, and we'll take your calls, your tweets, and emails. You can join the conversation. We asked residents earlier this week if you're voting in the hopes of a better life. What would a better life for you and your family look like? Again, we want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. In studio with me now are two guests. First, Dr. Ken Long, professor of history and political science at the University of St. Joseph. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Bilal Siku, associate professor of political science in Hilliard College at the University of Hartford. Good morning, also. Um, so we're only just a few months away from November. When you look at this election in 2016, how's it different from 2012 and, and 2008? We'll start with you, Bilal. How's it different? Yeah. <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> uh, it, absolutely. Um, you know, certainly the presumptive candidates that are out there um, are much different from what we saw a few years back. Um, really going back to 2008 with Barack Obama, the first African-American. Now we have a woman who has an opportunity to become president of the United States, has a really good chance. Then we have Donald Trump. We have the populist sort of uh, screaming that's going on on both the Democratic and Republican side. Lots of issues with international terrorism and um, economic stagnation across the country, really a global problem. And so there are a lot of issues out there today that are different from before, but in many ways are sort of continuous from problems that have been brewing for several decades now. Ken? Yeah, I think we have enormous pent-up frustration with the inability of government to address uh, the problems that people face, the, the concerns they have for whatever their vision of a, of a better life is. And uh, as a result, we've got uh, these, these two candidates who inherit a really terrible situation where government has been blocked and uh, are uh, tied in to this uh, concern. And as a result, I think we, we're seeing candidates that are fundamentally different, precisely in the, in the regard that you mentioned. They have very, very high uh, negative numbers. And that's uh, I've spent a career telling my students that what you expect in a presidential candidate who is successful and then ultimately in a president is somebody who a wide range of people can look at and say, well, okay. Um, they don't have the enormous positives, uh, but they avoid the high rates of, of negative uh, 
estimation. And here we have two candidates that just break that mold entirely, both of whom have very, very high negative numbers. Let's talk about that a little bit more, because when we do mention Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, there's definitely a very visible uh, effect when people hear their names, and there's a lot of of head shaking, and uh, people are just really unhappy with these two candidates. Can we first start off with with Donald Trump? Obviously, there's um, he's a very uh, brash uh, candidate. He says things that um, you know upset people. But what else is it about him that makes him so unfavorable, Ken? Uh, on the unfavorable side, I think uh, he's, he's somebody who, as his admirers put it, says what we think, but often what they're thinking is very racially conscious, if not racist, and maybe racist. And uh, as a result, he's sort of tapping into a lot of, of uh, anger that is occurring among many Midwestern and maybe just generally middle-class uh, American voters who blame the problems we have on our biracial or African-American president and his inability to, to make life better without much of a sophisticated understanding for all the many obstacles that, that our government suffers. Yeah, I think in many ways, more globally, there's this real frustration with political elites. And I think what Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton um, in many ways represent, and Clinton at least, the idea that she is a part of that elite sort of group of people. We've known her. She's been a part of the political scene now for decades. She's a former first lady, former senator. And she's a well-known commodity. Donald Trump at the same time is also well-known. Either you loved his show or you hated his show. You love what he does or you dislike it. Um, and so these two sort of stand out in a moment where many people all across the country are frustrated with elites, frustrated with the economy, very angry, upset, very polarized. And so these figures really sort of pull people in really different directions. And it really sort of typifies just this political moment that we're in as a society where people are really divided, sharply divided. And I think Ken is absolutely right in terms of some of the issues uh, that can be raised about Trump. I would pro- I would argue, actually, that it's fairly racist. It is racist. It isn't sort of perhaps racist in terms of some of the things he's done and said. And so from that standpoint, it appeals to a, a significant portion of the population that's, mm-hmm. that's out there that we've sort of told ourselves we're post-racial. They don't exist, but the reality is that there are people out there in America who are racist, and, and Donald Trump appeals to them. Are you surprised at how close this uh, the polls are showing that these two candidates are because they're they're so disliked? I mean, in one sense, uh, Trump um, because his ratings are so unfavorable, but he does say, as you said, Ken, he says what a lot of people think, and there's something there's that draw there that you know people say, well, you know, maybe he's a little bit different than right. the Beltway crowd, the, the Hillary Clintons. Uh, no, I'm not surprised that it's close. Um, I think uh, Hillary Clinton has been a relatively weak candidate precisely because she is so much of the consummate insider at a time when the principal advantage goes to whoever can show themselves to be anything but an insider. And what better example do you have of that than, than Donald Trump? Um, I also think just even in their, their central slogans, you see something that gives Trump the ability to be competitive. So Hillary has portrayed herself as somebody who's fighting for us, essentially saying, well, I'll try. Mm. Uh, I've tried before. I'm going to continue to try. I'm going to try as hard as I can. We've heard that before, and we know that people who try really hard typically fail. Uh, Donald Trump is, let's make America great again. And essentially he's saying, you know, I'm going to make you all richer by Tuesday. 
<laughs> and if you have to vote for one of those things, the latter sounds a lot more tempting. Right. I think it also helps Donald Trump has um, been out there. You know, when you really look at this campaign, there's a lot of entertainment involved. I mean, you listen to a Trump rally. He's making jokes. He's the crowd is really eating it up. This is a guy who has spent decades creating a stick that he sticks to. Which, and what's really amazing is that he carried that from television into politics, and he's been very successful with it, um, with a core of the Republican Party. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the presidential race just a few months to go before voters head to the polls. Dr. Ken Long, professor of history and political science at the University of St. Joseph, and Dr. Bilal Siku, associate professor of political science in Hilliard College at the University of Hartford, are in studio. If you'd like to talk about what issues matter to you this election season, maybe you're not, uh, your mind is not made up about the candidates. Maybe it's not the major party candidates. Maybe you're looking at the third party candidates. Give us a call, 860 275 you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live, and you can email us at where we live at WNPR.org. We are getting a tweet from a listener. Peter says, Jill Stein for president. Let's talk about her. Ken? Okay. Well, I think she's <laughs> going to do uh, you know better than a Green Party candidate normally does. Uh, so she's, she's not well known, uh, but people know what the Green Party is and what it stands for, and she's been their standard bearer before. And so if you're among, particularly if you're among the uh, Bernie Sanders admirers, and particularly if you're among the 15% who polls tell us uh, are not going to vote for Hillary Clinton no matter what, mm-hmm. um, there's probably uh, no better obvious choice than, than Jill Stein. Uh, the Green Party will appear on the ballot in most states. And so if you're in Connecticut, you're going to see her name. You might not see the name of the Socialist Workers Party candidate or whatever, uh, but you will see the Green Party candidate, and she's going to draw... Uh, a couple or more percent of the vote, I think, in Connecticut and, and in a lot of states. So she won't have the power of Johnson and the Libertarian Party, which is better established and better known and uh, more reflective of a more conservative country. Uh, but if you can pos- position yourself as somebody who's neither Trump nor Clinton, you're going to get a lot of votes this time around, particularly at the end. Right now we're seeing polls that show 36% each for Trump and Clinton, according to the latest uh, I've seen. Um, and Johnson at about 12. I think Stein gets thrown into others, but she's probably got a couple percent of the vote. Um, But the campaign hasn't begun in earnest, and when we're done 10, 12 weeks from now, we're going to hear commercial after commercial about how Trump is dangerous, unqualified, uh, a rogue, and commercial after commercial about Hillary Clinton being self-centered and corrupt. And at the end of the day, a lot of us are going to believe both sets of ads. We're here uh, just hours after uh, a terrible incident in Nice, France, and so I'm wondering when we look at um, what's going on around the world, when we see incidents like this, um, and hopefully they don't continue, but I think history shows us that they will, um, you know, what are some strengths that Hillary Clinton may bring to uh, the presidency that Donald Trump may not because, you know, he's not a, a seasoned politician? Well, they're both going to have strong appeal on this issue. You know, Trump is positioning himself as law and order candidate. Some of the most outrageous things he's said has been about you know, violating international law in very dramatic ways to kill not just terrorists but uh, or suspected terrorists but uh, their family members as well. Uh, and he's won a lot of support for that, basically suggesting, you know, I'm going to be outside the box in my approach to this terrible problem, and I'll make you safer by being rough and tough with the bad guys. 
Uh, Hillary Clinton is going to position herself as someone who's seasoned, who understands the problem, who won't make it worse with brash, stupid mistakes. Um, and so they'll both have some appeal on this issue. Um, I'm not sure either one of them is going to take a fundamentally different approach on this issue, which may matter most in a, in a presidency, because presidents have a lot more power in foreign policy than they do in domestic policy. And neither one of these candidates is talking about fundamentally changing course in American warfare uh, in Muslim-majority countries. And we, we have significant military operations going on now in six different Muslim-majority countries all at the same time. That's a remarkable and, and, and troubling situation. Yeah. I think one interesting question for, for me um, will be to what extent the, as Ken has already mentioned, the sort of ability and experience really show. Um, I think, you know, last night, uh, Trump gave an interview where he said he would call for a declaration of war from Congress. And, you know, my first question is declare war on who and how. And so I think this question of experience and, and know-how and, and a real sort of understanding of the issues will perhaps separate the two candidates. And as they we move more closely to the debates and really hear um, foreign policy proposals and strategies for dealing with these kinds of problems, I think the distinction between the two candidates and perhaps the, the know-how and the ability will really show that there is a gap between the two. Before we go to a break, I just wanted to bring up the latest Quinnipiac University poll looking at uh, crucial swing states of Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And on uh, the point that Ken was making, uh, regardless of who you int- or how you intend to vote, who do you think would be most effective against ISIS, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Trump leads 57 uh, in the mid-50s to Clinton in the 30s to low 40s. So even though, you know, she's former secretary of state, the rhetoric from Donald Trump is showing people that he's going to hit our um, opposition hard. But if I recall from that poll also, though, in terms of the question about ability and foreign policy in general, that Hillary Clinton had an advantage there. So it's an interesting sort of juxtaposition where, um, people are really looking for a very tough response to ISIS and the threat of terrorism. And Donald Trump has said all of the sort of right kind of re- – he said he's given the right kind of rhetoric around that. You know, he'll bomb them into oblivion and he'll do all of these things. He will aggressively go after them. And she's been much more measured about her tone and also about also the t- potential blowback from any action that we take. Americans, unfortunately, don't understand much about the Muslim-majority world or about the Islamic State or about the causes of terrorism or how to deal with it effectively. Uh, but what they can understand is what we've tried and what we've not tried. And Clinton represents what we've tried. And Trump represents something weird and new, and who knows, maybe it'll work. Uh, I think this is an issue that, strangely enough, advantages him, even though he is anything but seasoned and responsible. On the flip side, opponents to Trump would say it's it's pretty scary uh, to think about uh, someone like him in office with such wild rhetoric um, when we're talking about, um, you know, countries that we don't want to break, diplomatic ties and allies. And so it will be interesting. But we want to take your calls before we go to break. Um, but I want to give you the number 860-275-7266. And we'll be right back. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you were to vote for a better life, what would a better life be for you and your family? Definitely a good job. Stable economy, better housing market. Good home. 
I would say less taxes. Money. Safety. Health. More peace and more openness to differences. More fairness for everyone in life to all be equal. We don't really have segregation as much anymore, but less of that mindset, like people are different. Those were voices gathered on the streets of Hartford and West Hartford by our intern, Leah Myers. Today, where we live, we want to know what issues matter to you this presidential election. Maybe your mind is made up on who you'll support in November. Tell us what issues you believe that candidate will address to make your life better. The number to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. I'm joined in studio today with two political experts, Dr. Ken Long, professor of history and political science at the University of St. Joseph. Also, Dr. Bilal Sidku, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hillier College at the University of Hartford. Um, I wanted to take a call now. Uh, Derek from Windsor is calling where we live. Hi, Derek. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Tell us, wh- what's on your mind? Well, I'm going to share a sentiment that's shared widely by a lot of people that I know. Personally, I'm just going to vote because it's a right to do so, but I personally don't think that any of these candidates, whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, are going to make much of a difference. That's my opinion. And secondly, this is America. We know how to send people into space. And there's no powers out there can tell me that people in America, the powers that be, don't know what to do to make lives better. My take is that people just don't want to do it. And one of, some of the things that I would like to see if it will happen is that for them to break down these social barriers that are preventing the so-called people like myself, minorities, from achieving our goals and dreams. These are things that was promised to us by the American Constitution or whatever they may be. I like things like raising the minimum wage, providing better housing for minority, a whole long list. I don't want to take up your time, but briefly, that's what I would love to see. And like I said again, I don't think any of these, um, um, uh, um, whether Trump or Hillary, are going to make much of a difference because it's much bigger than them. We've got to change the whole government, Congress, everybody, for anything to happen. And the people got to stay on top of the issues. If not, again, nothing's going to change. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Derek, for your call. Um, Bilal, that's a sentiment that we hear often from Americans is, you know, these are issues that matter to us, uh, minority issues, social justice, a a fair minimum wage. And every four years, uh, you know, there's promises. And are those promises kept? You know, that was stated as about, about as well as it could be stated. I mean, I think it really reflected the frustration that people have with the failure of political leaders to deliver particularly the things they promised during political campaigns. And so, you know, uh, I think what he has echoed uh, here really is what people have been saying about, um, you know, this entire election cycle. And I think it's that frustration why people are thinking about candidates outside of the box. I think it explains some of the success of Bernie Sanders. It explains some of the success of Donald Trump, where people are saying, look, you know, you guys have made promises to create jobs, to solve some of these very deeply rooted structural problems like income inequality and um, racial and ethnic segregation, police brutality, and you failed to deliver those things. And But what's amazing, though, is that he says, I'm still going to vote, but I don't have confidence that these guys will get the job done no matter 
what I decide to do on election day. Ken, that brings up a question I wanted to ask earlier, and that's, you know, the people that are frustrated with the major party candidates, the people who say, well, I don't know who I'm going to vote for. We've heard anecdotes of people saying, I'm not going to vote. Is that going to be a problem uh, this November? That's going to be a big problem. Um, And I think because right now we hear a lot of people already saying that they're not sure they're going to vote, some saying that they uh, suspect they won't vote. And there is a bias in favor of telling uh, researchers what they want to hear. And they, everyone knows they want to hear that, oh, yes, I feel it's an obligation to vote. So we're probably underestimating the extent to which uh, we might get a low turnout. But I think uh, the comment I made before about hearing a lot of ads that make us feel worse and worse about both of these candidates and to experience that for 10 weeks or more, it really pushes uh, the voting rate down even further. It can push it up a little bit for some of the minor party candidates, but overall, uh, it pushes it down. Now, I want to come back to to this point because uh, I, th- I agree that, it, that he stated this about uh, as eloquently as, as anyone could, uh, and that there is this level of frustration. But it intrigued me that he mentioned the Constitution as something that somehow promises us a better life, mm-hmm. and really, what the Constitution may do more reliably than anything else is to divide power against itself to make sure that we don't have tyranny, which is a wonderful formula for creating a government that endures, but it's a terrible formula for creating a government powerful enough to solve our problems. And so what the Constitution really does best of all is it divides people against each other so that even when we have the best people running for office, and I'm not sure we have this this time around, but even when we have the best and we elect the best, they're still generally not able to achieve much of what they would love to achieve and that's not by happenstance, and that's not because they're poor politicians. It's because power is divided against itself, and they simply can't do anything when there's no consensus in Washington to do so. And uh, that was a problem enough when I was young, and there was 6% growth, and Republicans and Democrats could say, yes, we hate each other, but you take 3%, and we'll take 3%. It's now next to impossible when there's essentially no growth. Mm-hmm even though that's when we need effective government most of all. And there is a tweet we're getting from a listener who says, you know, what the point that you're making, Ken, what role does the obstructionist Congress play in the lack of achievement over the last eight right. years? And, and, you know, that would be my sort of only add to, to what he said. At large part, I agree. But the one difference, I think, is that leadership matters. And I think what has been very problematic is the failure of leadership. Um, in our country, uh, we have political leaders on both sides of the aisle who um, are willing to obstruct public policy if it serves you know, their desire for power um, within the political system. And what we need is the kind of leadership um, you know, in Congress, in the White House, across the country, in our state legislatures, our cities. We have great models of, of great leadership that are out there pushing. One of them is going to be a guest in a little bit, uh, Senator Ho- uh, Winf- uh, Gary Holder. When you sort of think about what he did coming into office, you know, with the abolition of the death penalty and some other sort of progressive ideas that he pushed in the state, um, that's a great model of good leadership and what good leaders can do who are committed to doing the right thing. And I think certainly our Constitution creates obstacles and barriers and in many ways uh, is quite undemocratic when you really think about it, if, if you're talking about things like the Electoral College, for example, and it's really designed to be very incremental and to not sort of push through things very quickly. But what that then demands of the people who we elect to office and what they do once they get in office 
it matters even more. And I think that is where the the deficit is really at, is the quality of the leaders and the type of people that we're sending um, to Washington. They're just people who are going there to obstruct, which is quite different from people who are going there to make good public policy and solve problems. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about this election season. We want to hear from you what issues matter to you, uh, what candidate you're supporting. Maybe your mind isn't made up. 860-275-7266. State Senator Gary Winfield has been holding uh, patiently. Thank you so much for joining the conversation, Senator. Thank you for having me. You know, you represent uh, New Haven and West Haven. And again, I mentioned we're looking at the issues that matter to voters this presidential election. Um, But when we were thinking about this show, um, you know, we we were thinking that we can't do it without talking about um, how voters really feel about America today, um, given the recent uh, killings of two black men in Louisiana and Minnesota. I wanted to get your opinion of, of what's going on in our country right now. Are we as divided as people say? I think the country has been divided on the issue of race for a very long time. Um, I think it's easy most of the time not to really have a conversation that goes deep about it, not to really uh, have to deal with the issue. But when you see what we've seen in the last week with the uh, videotape, with it being on the news 24-7, basically, uh, it's hard to run away from it. And so uh, you're forced to risk wrestle with this question in ways that we aren't always. Um, And the question of what exactly that divide is, is what we are wrestling with right now. You see the town hall with the president last night. um, And some people think, you know, the president has come and he had a moment of leadership. Uh, And this morning I was talking to people who were very frustrated about that town hall. Mm -hmm. So I think you have a country where people have sat where they've sat at the perspective they they have had. uh, And now that they're forced to reckon with the gray areas uh, is very difficult. Can we talk a little bit about why people are frustrated? You're mentioning there was a televised uh, town hall meeting. Um, I, I saw on social media people thought it was too scripted. I mean, what are you been hearing? <laughs> well, uh, that's exactly what I've been hearing. Uh, and I did not get to see all of it. I was busy doing some work. Uh, but from what I saw, it did feel, at least the moments I um, uh, got to see, it did feel scripted. And I, I guess that's for a reason. You have the president, you have the president for a short period of time. Uh, to a certain degree, it does have to be scripted. But I think people felt like it didn't explore anything we haven't already talked about, and it didn't explore them in ways that we haven't spoken about them, and that's where the frustration was. I wanted to um, play a cut of President Obama. Um, you know, Bilal Siku is here from the University of Hartford, and, and he was saying that, you know, we need uh, true leaders, and, and President Obama uh, made some remarks earlier this week that I thought were interesting in Dallas. I'm here to insist that we are not as divided as we seem. And I know that because I know America. I know how we've come against impossible odds. And State Senator Winfield, you know, obviously the president is is putting on an an optimistic face. But again, you're down in in, in New Haven. Um, You've been very front and center about talking about um, social justice and race issues in our communities. Um, You know, what's going on in our communities in terms of how this frustration will play out in November? So I have to... Uh, appreciate the president's attempt, but disagree with him. Uh, You know, a year ago, we had a conversation about police accountability and body cameras. In that conversation in our state legislature, you had uh, legislators of color talk about what their actual experiences have been. Not something they had heard, what the actual experiences have been. You had legislators who never had those experiences who disagreed with them. 
And so I think this is what you see play out in this country, in New Haven and West Haven, across this state. You have people who've had actual experience uh, with police, uh, with government, whatever it may be. And those experiences are racialized because we live in a country that from its very inception has had a race issue. And majority doesn't, the majority doesn't see it the same way because they haven't had that experience. And instead of saying, this is a place where uh, I, I, my opinion is my opinion, but it doesn't necessarily um, win the day, if you will. I can't think of a better word at the moment. But this is a place where I listen. Uh, what happens oftentimes is uh, those who have an opinion that is different because of their experience are made to have to just exist with that opinion, but nothing is done about it. And so that's where, that's where the, the dissension happens. That's where uh, the, the departing happens. Uh, and I think it's terrible. I think there, like, if there were issues of women, I would sit back and say, I don't know what it is to be a woman. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to race in this country, for some reason, uh, it doesn't matter whether you've had the experience or not. And I think that's where the problem is. We have two political scientists in studio. I wanted to um, go now to Bilal Sidku, Associate Professor of Political Science at, at the University of Hartford. Um, again, my question to State Senator Winfield is how much will um, the racial tension in this country play out in November? Right. Well, first of all, good morning, Senator Winfield. Good morning. Uh, yeah, absolutely agree with what he said. I, I was, you know, to be quite honest, I was stunned by the president's statement. I think, you know, everything that public opinion polls show Certainly what has gone on with this presidential campaign and the success of Donald Trump, the sort of racially loaded um, arguments he's been making, whether it's against immigration. Um, When you think about every time there's a police shooting of an um, African-American, the reaction from far too many Americans is, well, if they would only cooperate with the police, they wouldn't end up being dead. And, you know, certainly uh, I've always argued that there is a great divide between people of color and whites on many of these issues. As I said, public opinion polls clearly demonstrate um, that there is a huge divide with regard to the perception about the extent to which racism is a problem in our society, the extent to which structural racism and institutional racism operates in our society. And there's a long list of things that, you know, clearly show that we are quite divided in our perception and the reality of race in our society here in Connecticut. You know, as I drive around, I, like many other African-Americans, really experience real anxiety whenever I see a police car sitting on the side of the road. And I drive and I look in the rear view mirror, the side view mirror, the rear view mirror, the side view mirror. And then when I'm a safe distance away, I go, whew, they're not going to pull me over. And I think for many of us, that's a reality. Just the other day, I sat with a group of African-American professionals, and we all swapped stories about our stops with the police, and they bordered on the ridiculous for some of the reasons that it occurred. But all of us, you know, really drew the conclusion that we were, you know, one raised voice or perhaps one hand movement away from what could be a fairly routine traffic stop turning into a deadly encounter with law enforcement. Lucy, if you have a second, can I just say sure. that I, I think part of what happens is, so when we talk about whether race informs what happens between uh, uh, minority communities and police, I think people are saying that we think the police are hunting us. I think that they're thinking that we're thinking that police are out to kill us. And I think what's more important than that kind of conversation, which I'm not sure is correct, well, I'm sure it's not correct, but what I think is more important is that race informs it because when, when police stop us, when they interact with us, 
their perception of who we are is different than their perception of who others are. And so race informs it in a way that that, that, that interaction starts off in the wrong place and more, more than it ever should happen, it ends in the wrong place. And I think that's what we're talking about. We're, it is not beneficial to me to just go around accusing people of racism, but it is important for people to understand that if you approach the, the, the person who you're dealing with and you think there's something more likely to be criminal about them because of their skin color, there's something more likely to be wrong with them because of their skin color, it informs that whole interaction. Ken is also here from uh, the University of St. Joseph. Um, you know, how how much do you think race will play in how people are going to vote this November with with the, with the recent uh, police uh, killings? Oh, I think it's going to be a, a major factor. Uh, key will be the level of uh, African American turnout in the election. Uh, that's been one constituency that's been very reliably for Clinton. So that's going to be key to her success, as will Latina vote to a certain extent. Um, and Trump is certainly going to cash in on, on, on the very conservative white vote, including the, the racist component of that. Um, but I think the senator is absolutely right when he's talking about the role of, of this issue as it intersects with other issues of structural racism. So the plain reality is that we live in a profoundly segregated society. Uh, it is no longer segregated by law, uh, except for very few minor exceptions. It is segregated by economic uh, realities. Um, and uh, at the same time, we celebrate having our first biracial president. We live in a society that now has a larger gap between the races on income and wealth. And that matters enormously. And we live in a society that has done very little, if anything, of substance to uh, regulate uh, gun, gun ownership. And that adds to a dynamic that is just uh, a disaster waiting to happen. I want to. I want to take a call now. Our, our callers have been very patient. Thank you. Uh, Raj is calling from South Windsor. Raj, you're on where we live. Yeah. Uh, hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. And you know, here uh, before we get into the candidates, like uh, whether it is Hillary or uh, in a Donald Trump, my understanding is it's between politicians and non-politicians. Because uh, the, the, during this Republican uh, convention, so we have seen like you know, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, good politician candidates. But uh, people did not accept them. Rather, they, they went for Donald Trump. Okay? Because in our blood, it has become like, you know, if you want to be a U.S. citizen, you have to be a politician. That's how we, we are uh, uh, feeling like, you know, that, that's a... Tradition has come along the way. So when uh, Donald Trump is trying to come into this one, uh, he doesn't know how to speak politically, right? So that that's what I'm thinking. Like it's made more of a division between the politicians versus non-politicians, and also we do have many issues in our country. Like you know, one of the things is uh, the racism. The other one is the recent Orlando shootings, right? Yep. And these are the like you know internal topics where. Uh, Hillary was not able to talk much about uh, uh, in the demonstrations. We would like to listen, like you know, in these conventions, we would like to listen, like you know, what they will be doing for the country rather than like you know, external affairs, like you know, with like you know, all this, uh, you know, the entire world. We would like to hear like you know, more about this country, what they will be doing. All right, Raj, thank you so much for your call. Um, so in the weeks ahead, um, you know, what are we going to be hearing from the candidates? What issues that you think they're going to focus in on, Bilal? 
Jobs, jobs, jobs. I think, you know, when you think about what is driving this moment in many ways is the frustration with an economy that is stagnant and has been stagnant for a while. Wages have um, leveled out since the 1970s. We've seen growing wealth inequality in the country. We've seen a financialization of our economy that has produced a huge um, inequality where we've seen, even since the so-called recovery, much of that wealth and income has gone into the hands of the top 1%. And most Americans in the real economy have not experienced any real growth in their incomes or in, in their job stability. More and more people find themselves now working part-time jobs, or if they're reemployed from the job they lost before the recession, they make less than half, in some cases, uh, the money that they made before. And there's a real disconnect between a, a, a uh, stock market on Wall Street that continues to break records, and yet the real economy, um, we don't see job growth, we don't see people finding themselves uh, really believing that next year will be a better year for them, a better year, and in a few years it'll be a better time for their kids. And I think that will be at the center and has been at the center of this election. We're going to have to break soon. I wanted to turn to State Senator uh, Gary Winfield before we go. Um, Senator, you know, we were talking about uh, racial tension in this country and and what, if anything, has changed and how people are are observing uh, what many Americans feel each and every day. Uh, But you're down in the New Haven area, um, and and during this past few months, I mean, you were obviously a Bernie Sanders supporter. Uh, What does this uh, upcoming election mean to you now when we have these two presumptive major party candidates? I think the election still means the same thing. For me, uh, what we, me and the people who are running for president have to answer are those existential questions about how do people continue to live and live well. And I think uh, Galal is right about what the conversation is going to be. I think for those of us who are Sanders supporters, the question now is what do we do where we go? Uh, some people are answering that by doing what is expected by going to Hillary, and some people are thinking about Jill Stein. Uh, strategically, I am uh, moving to Hillary. Uh, I know some Sanders supporters do not like that, uh, but I think um, the answer to the question doesn't rest in Donald Trump. And that's not because he's a Republican. It's because his answer to everything has been, uh, we'll make it great, which is, to, to me, a non-answer. And so I think my I'm about the business of uh, helping Hillary Clinton get elected at this point. But the, but the fight for those who, are, who were Bernie Sanders supporters is beyond Hillary. It, it is a fight that uh, is uh, at the presidential level, at the state level, and at the local level. We've got to change the way our politics work. Uh, and part of that, really, for me, was always about the issue of uh, campaign finance reform, which I think is a fight that largely still needs to be fought in this country. We'll have to leave it there. We're running out of time. Thank you so much, State Senator Gary Winfield. If you're on the line waiting to join the conversation on where we live, uh, keep holding. We'll be back right after this break.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about the issues that matter to voters this presidential campaign season. Our conversation is pegged to NPR's Nation Engaged series with member stations across the country. The question is simple. If you're voting this November in the hopes of a better life, what would a better life look like for you? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take a, a quick call. Uh, John from Hartford, you've been uh, holding the line. Thank you so much. Uh, you're on Where We Live. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I wanted to respond to something one of your guests, and excuse me for not remembering which one it was, but I think you mentioned that the best people are running for office or get elected to office, you know, the most qualified people. I've got to say, both on the, the, the local, state, and national level, I couldn't disagree with that more. I think it is the exception to the rule when you get the best people, the most intelligent people, the most passionate people, you know, involved. And I think there are so many institutional barriers to that right now. If you, you know, the very fact that we have the ability to vote for a party, pull a party lever or fill in a party box, suggests that we're not even, we're rigging the game right there in terms of, you know, what are the, the options there. The fact that we have third parties that are called minor parties, by the very fact that we call them minor, says their, their message is less important. I think you're seeing a lot of reaction to that in this um, in this election. But the Democrats and Republicans who are in office now have the ability to change that. Rather than put barriers to voting, barriers to, um, to getting other voices involved, to creating coalitions, I think you've seen them maintain the status quo. And that's why people are really so disgusted. You know, as someone who, who did run for office locally unsuccessfully, uh, you know, I've really got to consider, is it worth my time again to, to do that? Because the hoops I would have to run through as a positioning candidate are just, you know, they're, they're a credible waste of time and energy that could be put to, to, to such better use. So that's one of my frustrations this year. I hope that after this election, or even during this election, before November, we may see some strong third-party candidates come out. I hope the Green Party and, you know, even the Libertarians, although I don't agree with their, their overall philosophy, I hope that they have an exceptionally strong showing, because the time is... The time has passed for just two voices. There are so many voices in this country that aren't being heard, and it, it's very frustrating. Well, thank you, John, uh, for your comments. And that's, I guess that's one of the um, uh, the, the lessons or that Bernie Sanders brought to this uh, campaign season, the people that wanted uh, more than just the major, you know, the two ma- major parties to, to have a voice, all these independent voters out there in Connecticut who feel left out of the process. Ken? Sure. The, the caller may have misheard me. I said even when we get the best people elected, I don't think we routinely uh, achieve that. Uh, but I do think probably most of the people who are elected are generally well-intended people. Uh, and uh, I may be wrong about that, but that, that's my sense of things. On both sides of the aisle, it would, among strong conservatives and, and very strong liberals, I think most of them are probably well-intended, uh, maybe not all that capable, um, and sometimes very capable. But even if we get the very best people, uh, they're still going to be blocked by others with a different agenda. That was my, my main point. And I guess I have bad news for the caller. As much as a lot of Americans are hoping for an alternative to Republicans and Democrats mm-hmm. to sort of break out of this mold that we're in altogether, we have election rules that pretty much guarantee that we have a two-party system. So since we elect whoever gets the most votes, and it doesn't have to be a majority, when a third-party candidate runs she or he usually just pulls votes away from the other candidate most similar to him or her and helps the other candidate. So it's sort of self-punishing activity. 
to run as a third party candidate. And if in time somehow we get our wish and let's say the Green Party becomes fabulously successful somehow, it would simply replace one of the existing parties, probably the Democratic Party, if such a thing could ever happen. And we'd still have a two-party system, would just be two different parties. So we'd need different rules for elections in order to have a multi-party system. And again, that would bring us back to making serious structural changes that are, are hard to imagine anytime soon. I wanted to get some various voices in this hour. Uh, we have two joining us now. Uh, I wanted first to go to uh, Pramod Pradhan, who's a West Hartford resident. Pramod, you're on where we live. Hi, Lucy. Good morning. And thank you thank so much you. for your call. I, we just have a, a few minutes, but um, I thought I, your perspective will be in, would be interesting because you're a, a new U.S. citizen. You uh, were naturalized in 2009, so I'm assuming you were able to vote in 2012? Yes, I was. I was able to vote in 2012, and I haven't missed a single uh, you know, election voting that comes along uh, in West Hartford. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, but, you know, I mean, as we were talking about... Uh, the election, coming up election. You know, one of the things is, uh, you know, I see is every year uh, when I notice things happening around here, uh, I see the American dream slipping by. You know, so uh, I think the party, you know, uh, which is going to come onto power has to, you know, think about reviving the American dream, you know, which is democracy, rights, liberty, opportunity, and equality. So, I mean, these are, you know, uh, most concerns, uh, you know, when I see, uh, you know, education, you know, the, the cost of college is going up. I have a son mm-hmm. who's uh, trying to go to law school, and when I see the, uh, the tuition fees, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, uh, you know, it's just overwhelming. So, you know, all these things matter, uh, you know, when uh, you decide who to vote to. That's interesting. As a, a, a new citizen, uh, promote uh, to say that um, you really feel like the American dream is slipping away. I wanted to have one of our political scientists weigh in. Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask a question of the caller. You know, and Ken can probably relate to this. We deal with 18 and 19-year-olds who often say, what's the point of voting? I don't think my vote will really matter. And I was struck by your point that you get citizenship and you vote in 2012 and you haven't missed an election since. Could you maybe explain why that's so important to you? Of course. I mean, coming from Nepal, you know, I have seen uh, people struggle to get this basic right to vote. I've seen people die uh, to just get this basic, you know, rights to vote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whenever an election comes, that's, that's what reminds me. And one of the, you know, main thing that drove me to get citizenship uh, was the right to vote. And, uh, you know, whenever I'm um, in my community, you know, I always encourage people to vote. Uh, you know, it's it just because of the things I think people mm-hmm. have to see these things, how we struggle, you know, in order to get this simple right. And Pramod, thank you for um, for telling us about, you know, your passion to vote and as a new citizen. We were talking about young people. We were talking about college costs. Um, I wanted to bring in Alex Sorvis, a Fairfield resident who's uh, 18 and a voter. Hi, Alex. You're on Where We Live. Hi. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. We just have a couple of minutes, but I thought it was important to get a young perspective uh, during the show. You're going to be voting this November, I'm assuming? Yes, yes, I am. I'm planning on voting. And tell us, you know, what matters to you as a young person in this country um, when you hear a lot of this doom and gloom and cynicism uh, from from older Americans. Yeah, I mean, I'm Latinx. I'm a college student. And, you know, I have a lot 
a concerns involving tuition and involving immigrant rights. Um, yeah, and those are definitely issues that like directly pertain to me as you know, millennial and a Latina. And at the end of the day, you know, I wanted to find a candidate who I thought supported me most authentically and sincerely, and who really, you know, fought for issues that directly pertain to me, um, which is a bit selfish, but you know. <laughs> so yeah, I found that I guess in Bernie Sanders, and I voted for him in the primary. Um, and I mean, at the end of the day, I'm planning on voting for Hillary in the general elections. Um, and I mean, I'm definitely not pleased with the outcome, but at the end of the day, it's generally important to me to vote. And, you know, it's my first big election. So I just, I, I view it as my duty, you know, as a first time voter and somebody who's like, mildly disillusioned, but, you know, I still find it necessary, especially because there's so many issues that directly pertain to me that can be addressed through, you know, legislature and through, you know, good leadership. Well, thank you, Alex, uh, for joining us. Uh, we we're short on time, but I'm glad to hear as a new voter that you plan on, on going to the polls uh, this November. We just have a couple of minutes. I wanted to just briefly go back to our political scientists in studio. Um, you know, again, the conventions are around the corner. Uh, we're going to have some televised debates coming up. What should our listeners be looking for in these uh, short months before November? Ken, I'll go to you. Uh, look for a lot of uh, depressing details about character. So earlier Bilal said that he expected to hear about jobs, jobs, jobs. If, if that's the case, I will be so thrilled I'll try to learn how to do a cartwheel. <laughs> um, I suspect we're going to hear about character, 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 and that both of these candidates know that they're not well-loved, they're not about to be well-loved, but they can win I hate the other person more contest mm -hmm. if they play it right. And so both of these conventions are going to talk about the evil of the other candidate. Uh, I hope that doesn't wear on us. I want to thank Dr. Ken Long, Professor of History and Political Science at the University of St. Joseph. Also, Dr. Balil Saku, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hilliard College at the University of Hartford. Um, again, we'll be having more conversations about uh, the election uh, coming up in the next few weeks and months, including Congress. We can't forget them. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. Executive producer is Katie Tolarski. You can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.